Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are my colleagues at Investors Chronicle, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. Also on the podcast today is special guest Dennis Hall, Chief Executive Officer of Yellowtail Financial Planning. This year's stock market announcements have been marked by a series of dividend cuts, a highly concerning development for investors hoping to derive natural income from their portfolios. However, companies are still doing well and some funds continue to make impressive total returns. So rather than rely on dividends, you could create your own income stream from growth investments. Kate, you've been looking at this. How do you create your own dividends from growth investments? Um, well, yeah, this is the idea that instead of just buying income generating shares, you also buy units which you are, you're getting growth from and then you sell down those units to effectively create your own dividends. Okay, and um, what are the advantages of doing this? So there's the obvious advantage that you're not just relying on one type of stock um, to generate all of your income and you aren't kind of relying just on yield and you're able to kind of balance out your returns through growth and income. So it's kind of a more diversified approach and you get a bit more flexibility in terms of the type of thing you might be able to hold. But there are also big tax advantages, mainly that you can use more of your tax-free allowances if you're opting for both income and growth stocks and funds. And that's because everyone has both dividend allowances and capital gains exemptions, which they don't have to pay tax on. So the rates as well on capital gains are lower than income. So basically, it can be advantageous to to kind of use up those allowances and make the most of those slightly lower rates so that you kind of spread out your your tax efficiency, I guess, because it is worth bearing in mind that everybody has 11,100 capital gains exemption. And that means that you can make gains totaling that much from your shares without being taxed. And you also have now this new dividend allowance of £5,000. So you can earn that much in dividends without paying tax. So clearly, if you're maximising both of those things, then that's a very efficient way to, um, to generate income on your investments. And presume that's on top of what you have inside your sips and eyes as well. well. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, that's that's on that's outside any of those wrappers. Yeah. Okay. Um. I mean, that all sounds good. So, what kind of income can you expect from doing it this way? Well, obviously, there's no kind of guarantee here and no set amount. But um, I spoke to several different people, and figures like three percent, four percent were were kind of coming out as sustainable amounts to take from a portfolio. I mean, it's undeniable that the income level you might kind of expect is um, is going to be a bit lower than, than you might have hoped for. At the moment, people seem to be saying that with growth looking pretty anemic and income yields looking so low, mm. you might have to dial back your expectations a bit, but 3 to 4% sounded, sounded like the amount that people were kind of agreeing on because you obviously need to take an income that is sustainable for your portfolio so you're not just running it down to the ground and, and kind of taking too much out at once. Yeah, um, so not, not unreasonable, not, not, I mean, similar perhaps to um, what you'd get off the FTSE All Share. What kind of allocation would you have in one of these portfolios from which you create your own dividends? It's quite varied, actually. So I spoke to a range of people and they've all got quite kind of different you know, perceptions of what you should have. I think the general balance it is something... A balance between global growth, equity funds, bonds, UK-focused investments. The thing is, it might look quite different to, you know, the bond-focused income portfolio you might have held 10 mm. years ago. But then in terms of how you split that up, 
uh, people take very different views on it. So some people would say three quarters equity, one quarter bonds. Some would say uh, 60, 40. Some people just really, really are nervous about bonds now and are saying, actually, you know, don't do that at all. Others saying have something like absolute return strategies in there. So in terms of the actual way you chop it up, it's um, very much dependent on your risk appetite. Okay. Now, are there any disadvantages to um, taking dividends from growth investments? Yeah, well, there, there are major risks to relying just on growth for income. I mean, the great thing about dividends is they're quite consistent. Um, as long as they're not being cut, obviously, you kind of know when they're coming and uh, can plan a bit around that. Obviously, capital growth is, is just not predictable. Share prices go up and down. Uh, so depending on continued share price or fund increase, is quite a risky strategy and it's going to be less predictable and you might not be able to always take the same amount of income from growth in the way that you maybe could from dividends. Okay, now Dennis, do you think creating your own dividends from a growth-focused portfolio is a good approach? I think it is, but not in isolation. I don't think you should be an either-or. It should be a blended approach between taking a regular dividend stream um, as well as uh, taking capital that has been uh, that you've earned from a, from a portfolio. It is a good approach because it it means you're not focusing only on one sector of the market, which in its by its nature is quite cyclical. It allows you to to look for profits and growth in other areas of the market that you wouldn't ordinarily get to with just purely a dividend focused uh, a portfolio. Okay. Um. Now, what don't you like about um, doing this? Well, actually, I quite like doing it, but I think. Um, what the investors don't like is that psychologically it's a challenge in that to some extent you're spending what appears to be capital rather than a natural dividend stream. So for a lot of people, perhaps a, a bucket approach might help them get over that psychological difficulty of spending capital is that when profits arrive and, and as they arise is that you may cream some of those off to put them into a, a shorter term cash fund and you'll be able to draw down on that cash. Again, it feels like spending capital, but if you, if you can get into your head that it's profits that you've made, it helps you get over it. Also, I think one of the problems is it's slightly more difficult to manage in that you've got to be looking um, and balancing, you know, it's already been mentioned that you can use your capital gains tax allowances, but which pot do you take it from? Which sector of the market do you take those profits from? Um, so there's a bit more work involved. Okay, some uh, useful points there. And you can see Kate's full guide on how to create your own dividends in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Now, sticking with the subject of generating an income, this week's portfolio clinic features an investor looking for ways to meet shortfalls in his expected retirement income, a problem for many people due to the demise of final salary schemes and increasingly meagre returns from assets such as bonds and cash. Dennis, this investor whose portfolio you reviewed is looking to generate income but is unsure on property and bonds, two traditionally income-generating assets. Is he right to avoid these? Well, I think, uh, like a lot of people, bonds worry me at the moment too. Um, You're taking very high risks for very low yield at the moment and there's a, a large potential for capital loss if things turn against you. Um, so bonds I am wary about, particularly with uh, quantitative easing and this unusual monetary policy that we have at the moment. It's changing all of our rules uh, about how we think about bonds. But property, I think property is probably the time to load up as everyone else is fearful. Now is the time to be, to be getting in there and buying assets 
probably below their, their, their real value. We saw the same in 2008, 2009, and we were able to buy some terrific bargains in the uh, REIT space, uh, property investment trust space, because people were piling out. These are good long-term income producers. And if your objective is to buy and hold for a long-term income stream, if you can buy that asset cheaper than it's actually worth, now's the time to get in. Okay, so you would favour getting your commercial property exposure via a listed fund then rather than um, an open-ended fund? Personally, I would, uh, because my objective is not to have to to sell this at some point in the future. I want to buy this long-term. So the fact that at some point in the future it is going to fall again and the price of that is going to be less than its value doesn't worry me. That's why I'm buying it in the first place. Okay. Now, um, this investor says he doesn't like bonds, but he actually holds a direct investment in a retail bond listed in the London stock market. How do these types of investment measure up against bond funds, which is more normal for you know a private investor when trying to get exposure f- to fixed income? Well, this is the one area of the, that portfolio, I suppose, that gave me some concern, is that there's absolutely no diversification in bonds. If you look at the £1.7 trillion of bonds in issue in the UK at the moment, we have selected one. So there's a high risk there, whereas a fund gives you some diversification and allows you perhaps to, to manage and spread that risk because we don't really know what's going to happen. I, I, I think it's a brave thing to do. And he could turn around in several years' time and say, well, that served me very well. Thank you very much. What were you worried about? But the thing is, we don't know what's happening in the future. Okay. Are there any bond funds that you particularly like? Actually, I'm not a fan of any bond funds at the moment. My preference is, is really, because that's a very difficult question. My preference really is to look for short-dated bonds mm. because I'm looking for a bit of portfolio insurance and there I would probably use a Vanguard fund. But if, if I wanted to go in there and try and get some yield and, and potentially some gain in there, then I'm probably looking at funds from specialists like 24 Okay. This investor's portfolio is being tilted towards income. Is this appropriate for a retirement portfolio for somebody who's not actually yet retired? I think this goes back to that earlier question: is mm. that you know should you be in should you be using growth portfolios to run a dividend stream? And, and my comment is: I think you should have a bit of both. And the emphasis there would be on tilt. Of course, you would tilt, and the the deeper you get into retirement, perhaps the greater that tilt becomes. And, and so, and, and you have to start somewhere. And starting just before retirement might be a good idea. People want the security and the knowledge of knowing that there is a dividend stream, even if all that covers is their very basic expenditure to know that that's been met. Talking of, let's say, safer investments, um, this investor also holds cash. This has very low returns, but um, does it have a place in retirement portfolios? And if so, how much could it account for? Well, it does, but it depends on the individual. I've talked a little bit about basic expenditure. How much of that basic expenditure is covered by a guaranteed income, such as a final salary pension or an annuity? If, If it's not, then you're going to need some kind of emergency fund. Because if markets fall, dividends dry up, you need to get your hands on some cash. And if you look at how your portfolio is constructed, and perhaps go back to 2008, 2009, just how long was it underwater? You know, was that two years, was that two and a half, was that three years? And probably hold 
to some extent, that degree of cash that you might need if there was a shortfall between guaranteed income and your uh, and your uh, necessary expenditure, your basic expenditure. Now, the reader also asks how many holdings you should have in his portfolio. If you have, say, a portfolio of funds, um, roughly how many funds should you have? Well, size is a factor. We're really using funds to get some diversification, but also the more funds you have, it allows you to select from different funds and different sectors if you're trying to draw down some capital. But for smaller portfolios, there is a bit of a cost drag. And for, for small portfolios that we have, we tend to use only three or four funds. And large portfolios, core portfolios, we're looking at probably 13 to 16 funds. And then there are those investors that want to dabble outside of that. Mm. You know, there may be 60 to 80 percent of their portfolio is core. It's what's delivering their, yeah. their income or their capital returns. But the bits outside that grab their interest that may be a little bit more speculative, how many do you, do, do you put there? That's a different model. So for us, we're looking at the 13 to 16. Funds. OK, thank you, Dennis. Some um, useful points. Now, earlier this summer, a number of commercial property funds stopped investors taking out money or putting money into them, following a deluge of redemption requests as concern mounted over the sector, particularly after the vote for Brexit. This effectively shuts off another avenue for income. But Emma, you've been looking at an alternative way to get exposure to commercial property. What is this? Rather than open-ended commercial property funds that hold property holdings directly, looking at um, property security funds, which hold the shares of property companies. So it's the they hold the shares rather than physical buildings. What are the advantages of funds which invest in property company shares as opposed to buildings? The main advantage is their liquidity. So, I mean, the fact that these are property companies um, that will be listed on the main stock exchanges and their assets are, are sort of traded every day means that um, that gives liquidity to the funds and the good news for investors is that, you know, they'll always be able to trade. Mm. Um, the problem with, as we've seen um, earlier this, this summer, with direct commercial property funds um, locking in investors. So you won't get that issue with mm. these kinds of funds. Another potential advantage that some of the experts we spoke to mentioned was that they felt that these funds are actually more transparently valued than, than the direct yeah. property funds. And again, that's to do with the fact that their underlying assets are company shares mm. um, and are constantly being priced by the market. And they think that offers a better reflection of the value of the underlying assets than direct bricks and mortar funds, which the most that they will be um, physically valued is probably once a quarter. So they say that actually, you know, you're getting a fair reflection of, of value when you buy these funds. That all sounds good, but are there any disadvantages to property security funds? There are, and again, they are connected to the stock market exposure, the fact that their online um, assets are shares. So that means that you are going to get greater volatility with these funds because they are more likely to kind of experience um, swings in sentiments in them on you know, to do with the equity market and also you know, arguably you're going to get less diversification from other assets, which is one of the main reasons why people hold property anyway, because it's it's quite different from holding um, bonds or, or other equities. Because these are shares, you are going to be less diversified. Now, for people who might be interested in property securities funds, what are some of the uh, options that uh, the experts recommended? There's TR Property Investment Trust, 
which is currently the only investment trust in this space. Um, and it takes a, a hybrid approach to, to invest in. So as well as property um, company shares, it also has a small part of its portfolio in direct property holdings. And as of today, it's trading on an 11.9% discount to NAV. And it's also delivered you know, strong returns over the last five years. It's delivered a cumulative return of 123%. Some good value mm. there then, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And another fund which um, which done quite well that we looked at was Premier Pan European Property Share Fund, which has delivered a cumulative total return of 88% over the last five years. Okay, so some yeah, some strong uh, returns there. Dennis, you were spe- you're speaking about... Um, potential value in property uh, a few moments ago. What about property securities? Do you think funds that invest in these are a good option uh, for investors in light of the fact that many direct property funds have suspended trading? It's an option, but it's an option that I don't personally prefer. I believe there are additional costs in there. There's another layer of management. Personally, I'm wanting to get into property for the yield. And the yield from the uh, property securities funds tends to be lower, um, much lower than, than from uh, a property trust going directly in. And I've had my favourite trust, I suppose, um, things like foreign colonial commercial property, mm-hmm. um, which is paying a very good yield. I'm, as I said earlier, less worried about the liquidity of this thing. We're buying and holding because we're looking for, one, the diversification, and two, the income yield. Okay. I mean, do you think that property security funds could have any kind of role in an investor's portfolio? Yes, they could. It's down to the individual and what they're really looking for. It does give great diversification of the underlying assets. And perhaps, you know, are you going to choose the wrong fund or the wrong funds to invest in? This would be a way of probably reducing some of that risk. But I wouldn't be using the uh, property securities funds for a, a strong dividend yield, um, that this might be a diversification play. Okay, some interesting points there. Thank you, Dennis. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bealey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Dennis Hall, Chief Executive Officer of Yellowtail Financial Planning. You can read more on creating your own dividends, meeting shortfalls in retirement income and property securities funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.